We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Welcome to the Thursday edition of the RotoWire NFL podcast, sponsored by Yahoo DFS. I'm Joe Bartles, filling in for John McKechnie today, who is, I think, overwhelmed entirely or just getting really, really prepared for the college football season, which really officially starts, it feels like, today. And joining alongside me is Mario Puig, who is normally in on the Thursday. So really, you're just going to be carrying me today, Mario. Uh, I can assure you that's not it. I just, I don't have the work ethic for that. So carry on. Well, let's get to some of the news that started on Thursday or came out Thursday, and then we'll kind of touch on some of the articles that you've been putting on the site so far. I think we have to first begin a conversation with Ezekiel Elliott. We're getting closer and closer to the start of the NFL regular season. Obviously, college starts today for the most part. Uh, but we had a mandate, at least it sounded like from up top, that Ezekiel Elliott needs to be with the Cowboys today by the end of today, around today. And if he's not, then they're likely not going to be playing in week one against the Giants. Of course, all 16 preseason week four contests are playing uh, Thursday, today. Where did that come from? Sorry, I missed this. The, it was, I've got to make sure I got the report correct, but it was a, a suggestion from David Moore of the Dallas Morning News that if Elliott does not end his holdout, um, it was even yesterday, but I think today, if he doesn't end his holdout by today, he will not be ready for, or he will not be played in week one. He was suggesting it wasn't necessarily um, from up top, but it seemed to be like a certainty in his mind. Huh. Yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of doubt it because that's a that's a bluff that Dallas can't really afford to have called, you know? Like they, they don't want to issue an ultimatum that just looks stupid when the truth is they'll accept Zeke if he just shows up 10 minutes before the game, which I think is more likely. But yeah, I, I, for what it's worth... Jay Glazer said that he expects that Elliott will be in for week one. I don't I don't think that was necessarily pending any particular decision today or any particular day uh, other than before week one. So Jay Glazer's probably the most reliably plugged in person out there. No disrespect to the Shefters and Lock and Foras or Rappaports or whoever, but 
he did Jay did not say specifically like he knows it'll happen and he he didn't say he was uh he didn't elaborate on why he thought that was the case but he said he thought it was the case on the athletics so if uh, if Jay says that then that's kind of like the favored outcome for me but yeah it still looks like a pretty weird you know largely unprecedented situation whichever way it turns in the end so you think that if Elliot, like let's say uh, Sunday seems realistic, like next Sunday before they play the Giants, I think they're a Sunday night game or a Sunday game, right? Uh, I, I don't know for Thursday. sure. It's like th- Thursday's the start of the year, but right. I don't, that's, uh, that's the Packers, Packers and, and Bears. Bears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as long as Zeke is, I don't know, there, I, I would say as long as he's there by Thursday, I think he will be in, and I okay. think I think he could show up Friday and also get in. But who knows? It, there's a chance he shows up, not quite in the sort of conditioning that they need him in there's there's lots of unknowns here but i feel like the one thing we can know for sure is dallas is pretty desperate to get him in there even if they don't act like it publicly and if he is there there's not real competition on that team i mean it's interesting some of the backups and tony pollard especially stands out but if zeke's there even if his conditioning is bad i bet they're not really gonna find out for sure until he's in the game and just kind of runs out of gas and then they go all right well maybe next week i don't know but it's it's very weird i don't think anyone can know very reliably what's going on here it's but uh jay again said that he thinks zeke will be there so i will pretty much always co-sign anything glazer says i should i should confirm or or probably redo the statement i made that the report says by next wednesday's practice okay by next wednesday's practice that's reasonable right yeah this one's i still bet he could show up on friday and they'd let him in on sunday but uh it makes sense that they would kind of try to take that position because yeah that is when team practices begin in earnest for sunday games let's pretend zeke ends up coming back you know, in week two or something like that, or on, on Saturday before the game, they don't end up using him. Is Tony Pollard the running back to own? Is it Alfred Morris? Is it Darius Jackson? Like, I, I'm curious as to who benefits the most if Zeke ends up uh, missing time due to this contract negotiation. It seems like it would be Pollard. I don't really know what we can base it on other than the team's comments and kind of like the, uh, you know, the preseason usage. Pollard's looked pretty good and he's excuse me, only earned praise for his work in training camp. I don't know if we would have heard anything but praise given that Dallas needed to kind of make this credible, take this credible stance that, oh, we don't need Zeke. Who's who's Zeke? We don't remember him. Uh, we have Tony Pollard, see. So they, they tried to take that position, and it could be v- completely reasonable for all I know. I mean, Tony Pollard was a very explosive player at Memphis, uh, very – convincing history of of big production as a kick returner in addition to primarily playing receiver and a little bit out of the backfield it would be a little bit unprecedented i think if he could just immediately catch on as a running back yeah i think he had maybe maybe 140 carries carries last year. 78 carries last year 39 receptions so 140 or so for his career i guess would be the carry count and i think that would be less than even jalen samuels who I think would be my general comparison. I know they have different body types, like Pollard's got to be no more than 210 or so, and Samuels pushing 225, 230. But the point is, Jalen Samuels, even when he got out there last year, and even when he was, even as he did relatively well, you could see he was kind of raw from having played so much receiver and tight end at North Carolina State. And Pollard can run in the open field, but we don't have any documented history of him taking on a workload of more than probably like 15 carries in a game. And I think that was just the last game of last year or something like that. So I I don't know. It seems difficult for me to imagine that Pollard gets 20 carries in a game this year, even if he's the clear lead back, even if he plays like 45 snaps in week one, I would imagine whoever's the second, be it Darius Jackson, Morris, Mike Weber, I have no idea. Some of them would need to do something, I right. think, but I don't know. I mean, it's Pollard who you go after after Zeke pretty clearly, I think. I just don't know what the reasonable expectation of him is, even if Zeke is out. But I, I don't think Zeke will be out. I know that you're not one who has trumpeted this kind of thought process, but I've heard a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to take Damian Williams from the Chiefs because he's never ran more than 100 times in an NFL season before. And I'm always like, well, that's because he never had the opportunity to. It doesn't mean he can't do it. Wouldn't that same thought process apply for Tony Pollard, who last year was the most carries he ever got in college, was 78. The previous two seasons were 31 and 30. I get that reception aspect of it. Yeah. But he even at a collegiate level he wasn't a workhorse back and yet no. you would assume that's what the cowboys are trying to fill him in that role if zeke does end up missing time 
Yeah, and again, Pollard was more of a receiver in college than a running back, so he is changing positions, even if he's gotten carries out of the backfield before. He's changing positions. He's not playing receiver anymore, but he did at Memphis. So that's a, there's a range of uncertainty there that we can't know for sure. To be fair to the people who are big Pollard heads, I don't know how many of them are skeptics of Damian Williams. Like, for all I know, they most can, of them are Damian Williams fans. Right. I, don't, I don't really know. But, yeah, I... I I can say at the very least, Damian Williams took a starter workload at Oklahoma before he went undrafted. And, you know, surprise, undrafted guy doesn't get many carries until he gets the sort of opportunity that he did last year. And he did well with it. But uh, Pollard, uh, I don't know. I mean, he's he's a uh, seems like a good, well-rounded player, but I, I don't believe he can replace Zeke. I think someone else will have to do some kind of grunt work, but... Again, uh, Pollard seems pretty good. Dallas likes him a lot, and he's done well for himself in the preseason. So if if Zeke isn't there, he's pretty much got to be the lead guy as far as I can tell. And if he is the lead guy, he would be valuable just you know by definition of being a starter. I have one more at least Zeke-related question, and it's probably perfect to ask both you and John about this, but I don't understand why Mike Weber hasn't gotten more consideration as a guy that could really Yeah, me neither. In. Like, yeah, he looked great with Ohio State. I, I I had him in a few different dynasty formats that I thought he'd be fantastic. And this is literally the opportunity that I think we saw in college. And yet there isn't the, there's not even a possibility that it seems like he's the guy that's going to get the majority of the work if Zeke ends up missing time. Yeah, I don't know if what the intel is on him. I haven't been following him that closely. But I can say before the draft, I didn't have a substantially different assessment of him versus someone like even Miles Sanders. I mean, Mike Weber put up big numbers in the Big Ten. He was better as a passing down player than Miles Sanders. He ran the four four seven, which is actually faster than what Miles Sanders ran. I think he's a little bit lighter, like probably like eight pounds or five pounds lighter. But uh in any case, I I have to believe it's things to do with like pass protection or something like that if he is but yeah, a converted wideout is a better pass protector. That's just, it's just right. I don't know, and I, I mean, it's like I haven't seen any hype. I haven't seen exactly any like panic with Weber. I, I would take general issue with RotoWire's uh, depth chart listing him as sixth or whatever behind Jordan Chun. I don't. I would be surprised <laughs> if Jordan Chun, mediocre Troy State running back, is better than Mike Weber. But I, I just don't know, and it's, it's, it's generally something I've stayed away from in drafts because there's usually somebody who's a huge tony pollard believer Mm -hmm. and i'm more agnostic on it i think the player is interesting and as a prospect he's definitely an interesting fourth round pick but people are really his biggest fan in any given draft really believes he's like one of the best running backs in the league already there's just an unusual amount of hype for tony pollard among his believers whereas i think he would you know, you couldn't complain about Tony Pollard as a fourth round pick if he's even like a replacement level guy. The hype seems to think he's more than that. I don't really know what the basis is. So because I can't figure it out, I've mostly stayed away from it. Mm-hmm. But uh, if Pollard is out there, I think you have to like him just because, I mean, I think Dak Prescott's a totally good quarterback. The offensive line should be well above average again, especially if Travis Frederick can turn into the player he was before. So pretty much anybody who plays running back for Dallas should be productive. That's what I would have thought too, which is why I was confusing that Mike Weber hasn't gotten more rise, at least as a potential handcuff to Elliott, as opposed to Pollard, who has not been doing that very often. Or well, there very is, long. I just didn't... they took him three rounds earlier. So if anything, yeah, if, if nothing else, they would be trying to justify the pick by giving Pollard lots of opportunities. So it, it seems like they're riding with him and maybe it won't work the way they hope. Maybe it will. I really don't know, and uh, if if Zeke for some reason is if for some reason if God excuse me if he for some reason is not playing week one if we know that going in it'll be hard to stay away from Pollard in DFS and he will certainly be a starter for most of his uh, season long owners. I just think there's a wide range of things that could also happen in between now and then, and if Zeke's there, I just I don't know he's he's basically pollard that is is not going to really do anything in that case right. nobody is right i mean nobody in that backfield. right yeah, yeah yeah that's how i feel he'd be the rod smith role again yeah exactly before we get back to our conversation first a word from our sponsors fantasy football evolution fantasy football evolution is back for 2019 and better than ever you spoke and we listened we've added mock drafting moved the championship final to nfl week 16 and made setting up a private competition a snap 
Join FFE and play the game you love as it was meant to be played. FFE's unique three-stage format delivers the best of season-long fantasy football without the never-ending drafts or late-season absentee owner and waiver-wire antics that can develop in traditional leagues. Play as an individual or be the commissioner of your own private league, you'll get 16 weeks of action for just $25. You could be the next FFE $25,000 champion. Maximize your chances by owning multiple teams. Optional auto-draft and lineup assist can also help you manage them with ease. It's all here. What are you waiting for? For. Register now at fantasyfootballevolution.com and join the evolution. Availability varies by state. Visit fantasyfootballevolution.com for details. Well, it was it was a pretty slow news day, at least by the time we've recorded this podcast around 3 p.m. Central Time, um, with a lot of the 16 week four preseason games getting underway closer to seven o'clock preseason time. We did have a little bit of news and I, I, I think it's almost unfair to classify this as news. It's a beat, a beat reporter for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers saying that Peyton Barber could potentially be the week one starter against the 49ers, which means that's completely ruining my hundred percent ownership of Ronald Jones as the potential starter of the backfield. What's your take on the Buccaneers running back situation overall? And do you find any value out of Ronald Jones or Peyton Barber? or even Agubawale, who's kind of the third down back now du jour. I really can't figure out what the deal is with Ronald Jones. I feel like the deal with Peyton Barber is pretty obvious. Like, he's not good. He's very easily replaced. <laughs> I'm not convinced he really is an obvious NFL player. Like, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily pick him up if he were a free agent and I were a, running a football team. But Ronald Jones, I think it's at once safe to say that Dirk Cutter had an unreasonable level of alienation toward him. And even if Cutter had a good reason for being so alienated toward Jones, the fact that Jones was unusually young and the fact that Jones was uniquely productive at USC, including since his true freshman year when he was less physically developed than he is now, I think that that means that Jones was just kind of in a stunted development point. Like he maybe would have benefited from going back to school. And I I never would advise running backs to go back to school as a general rule, but maybe he really was one of these weird cases where his like maturity level, both mentally and physically just wasn't caught up to his skill level and talent level. And you know, the expectations that there were for him, but they barely took him out of the first round. Like he was a very early second round pick, the uh, sixth pick in the second round, that's just crazy if they really had a close look at him scouting him throughout the pre-draft process and he was this bad and they couldn't pick up on that that just seems improbable to me and that's that's an outcome that i can only entertain if he basically has some sort of off the field issue that's making him unable to to apply himself and his talents and there's no reason to say any of that so i would bet on him 10 times out of 10 to eventually take over barber but uh, Arians hasn't come out on either side. All we're left with in the meantime is beat writers like Rick Stroud, who I don't really think have any insight to offer. No one really has been able to say conclusively who's in the lead based on training camp or, uh, you know, who's been better in training camp, which is a dubious kind of thing to try to uh, quantify anyway. But, uh, Stroud saying this, all I hear is just Stroud saying, well, Barber was ahead of him last year and I don't, you know, I just kind of resort to what I saw previously and say it's the same, you know, coming up. There's usually just kind of tautological thinking with cases like this. And it's understandable because the beat writer doesn't really want to, you know, they think of themselves as objective, neutral observers. And they don't want to say like, I bet Ronald Jones comes out ahead because I just figure he will. Uh, That's not really the kind of. Beat that's too, Rick too much Stroud is. That they're putting into their work, right? I mean, that's yeah. I think he thinks it's his job to just kind of point out what was previously the case, <laughs> which you know it's fair right. interpretation. Yes. When, um, when you lay it out like that, it is kind of comical, though. But yeah, I'd see him and Jones as kind of just evenly, uh, evenly placed right now. And if they are starting at the same starting point, then I think Ronald Jones will eventually take the lead. I don't know how quickly. It might not be as quickly as his owners want, or maybe it will be. Really don't know. But in the meantime, we do know Dario Gumbawale is just about locked in as the third down guy. And that's interesting because Jones, Barber, for whatever they have going for them, they don't have the trust of the coaching staff. They haven't def- uh, demonstrated ability generally for passing situations, whereas Gumbawale has. So 
he seems to have a pretty clear avenue to playing time while the other two don't really. It's interesting how that Wisconsin system has generated so many receiving backs, and you wouldn't assume that given out of the Big Ten and just how they run the ball. But like James White is one of the premier receiving backs in the NFL. Corey Clement had that obviously famous Super Bowl catch as well. And Agumbo and Gordon. Is, what? Gordon, too. He, yeah. caught, he got like 10 passes at Wisconsin, and now he's uh, when he's playing – He's a, he's a 60, 70 catch guy. It's just so. interesting to see that, uh, how that's transitioned. But like it's multiple teams in the NFL that have decided, no, these Wisconsin running backs are are clearly well-suited more than Peyton Barber, who was last year basically the receiving back in a very decrepit running back backfield. But that was yeah. kind of his role. Yeah, I, I mean, you got to give a lot of credit to the Wisconsin coaches for their development of talent generally. Like they take three-star recruits. Occasionally they get a, f- a high four-star like Melvin Gordon. But a Gumbo Wally was a walk-on. Right. Uh, so he wasn't even on Wisconsin's radar as a recruit. So uh, they take talent and they develop it. And you see it with their linebacker picks, like guys like Schobert and whoever else. It's uh, Leon Jacobs, I think, was a two-star. The Borland, too, before Bo- he retired. Yeah, so it's like they just they develop a lot of good players. And Agumbawale really seems to be earning consistent praise in training camp, whereas you don't hear a whole lot of uh, predictions from beat writers about whether it'll be Jones or Barber. I think you can see a pretty clear uh, excuse me, a pretty clear line of optimism about a gumbo Wale. Like there don't seem to be, uh, or there doesn't seem to be a fear among beat writers to say that a gumbo Wale is doing well. It, the other two, they don't really seem to want to take a position on, but with him, they say like, yeah, he's, he's doing good. Right. Well, it's worth pointing out. We really haven't seen uh, Ronald Jones or Peyton Barber in the preseason much. The Buccaneers for better or worse have kind of kept that under wraps. And I think that's where the the, the concern comes from the beat writers, or at least the, the discrepancy as to who actually has stood out. It, we just, we really haven't the answer, seen it. Yeah. The answer might be neither. True. I mean, the Tampa Bay offensive line is not great and they are going to live and die by the pass anyway. So it might just be one of those situations where there's just kind of a funnel toward the past just because the running game doesn't really do much. And maybe they move toward a Gumba Wale because he amplifies the passing game. I don't really know. But uh, I consider them – I still would rank Jones first just because I don't think Barber has the talent. Whereas Jones, maybe the switch is off, but I think that if the switch went on, he would be good. I have no idea whether that's realistic, whether it's possible. But uh, a Gumba Wale – he seems to have a bit of a floor, but it's fair to worry that he doesn't have much of a ceiling, and it's it's fair to worry that Jones has the talent to gain ground on him, too, right. even if he's not there right now. Uh, Jones is still very young. Like He just recently, I think, turned 22. Uh, let me see. Yeah, yeah turned 22 sure. on August 3rd. So it, it makes sense for him to be a rough prod, uh, product right now, and if he's a rough product right now, that doesn't mean he'll always be one. He might improve. Yeah, no, I get that. And that's kind of the same um, same thought process that you've kind of been applying in for Marquez Velez-Scantling, who we kind of, we will be talking about more in the job battles conversation in the article that you wrote earlier this week. Before we do get to that, uh, let's get a word from our sponsors, Yahoo DFS. Yahoo has officially released their Week 1 Daily Fantasy Football Contest. They have $1 million contest for Week 1 with no management fee and $100,000 to first place, meaning more money goes back to you, the players. 10 entry max, and you're not going to be playing against people with 150 lineups like on other sites. Yahoo also has a thousand or $100,000 guaranteed contest, so there are a lot of other prizes out there for week one. If you're just getting started with Daily Fantasy Football, join the free-to-enter Yahoo Cup and play all season long. $150,000 in weekly and season-long prizes, and if you get a perfect lineup, you'll win $1 million. Just get started at yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy. Let's go ahead and touch on the receiving core and really who's getting the number two, three, and four jobs for the Packers, because I think that still isn't quite settled yet. Marquez Velasquez, Jake Kumaro, Equinemius St. Brown, you've touched on all of them before, and it, it, you've written about them multiple times throughout the preseason as to who's standing out in that job receiver battle. Devonta Adams, obviously the number one receiver for the Packers, but there is, I think, a legitimate conversation as to who ends up being the two and three. And that could be a very valuable spot when it comes to fantasy. Yeah. So there's the outside receiver role and the slot receiver role. It seems like Geronimo Allison is pretty well set as the slot receiver, which could make him in, uh, as a result, the number two fantasy receiver. Even if people keep referring to Valdez Scantling as the number two receiver right now, he's the number two outside receiver. And, Maybe he'd be the top backup at the slot. I don't know. I don't really know. I haven't read enough about the Packers to know what they're doing with that. But I think Allison will hold on to that role. I think he's more uh, suited to it than Valdez Scantling. I know Valdez Scantling played a lot of slot last year, but I think that's kind of the backward way to use him. I think he belongs outside 
Kumaro has pretty much only played outside, so he doesn't seem like a threat to Allison unless something changes. Equinemia St. Brown was the one who I think projected second best in the slot after Allison, and he's out with a high ankle sprain for at least a few weeks from now. So if he's out, and it, there's also the chance that when Equinemius comes back, he kind of struggles to get his footing again, like maybe he's a little bit off with his timing or his conditioning, and sometimes you need a little time to catch up with things like that. However long Equinemius is neutralized, it's good for Valdez, Scantling, Allison, and Kumaro. But with Valdez, Scantling, the deal is he's definitely the most toolsy of the bunch. He's 6'4", 210 or so. I think it was 206 or 207 when he ran the 437 at the Combine. So he stands out because even Equinemius, even if you believe Equinemius is a better prospect than Valdez Scantling, which I actually do, he's not the kind of toolsy wideout that Marquez Valdez Scantling is with Equinemius. If he's better, it's because he has a skill set to make up for it. Uh, he's a totally decent athlete himself, but he ran, I think, a 448. Uh, it doesn't burn downfield the way uh, Valdez Scantling can. No one can among the Green Bay wideouts, so he'll always have that. The question is whether in the 6th, 7th, 8th round of drafts, Valdez Scantling will hold off Kumaro, St. Brown, whoever else, enough to reach his upside scenario. And I don't have that many shares. I, I think the shares that I do have, it was when Valdez Scantling fell into kind of like the mid to late 8th as opposed to the late 6th or the 7th round. So there's an upside there, definitely. I just think there's maybe a low floor, too, because he didn't have a great catch rate last year, and he's probably still a little bit raw after playing in an option-heavy system at South Florida, whereas Kumaro's been, I don't know, for four or five years now practicing in the NFL. So he doesn't have as much talent as Valdez Scantling, but he's also less likely to make just you know errors, probably less likely to drop passes, things like that. So... I think there's a bad case scenario where Valdez Scantling just struggles a little bit. And if he does, Kumro probably won't embarrass himself if he gets an opportunity. So that's the bad case scenario. The good case scenario is uh, Valdez Scantling just holds Kumro off and you know does a good job early in the year and just maintains momentum the whole time. Uh, but I do think the whole range of possibility is there. So I haven't been doing as many drafts as you have been um, throughout the season. That's mainly um, you're doing best ball stuff, particularly on draft, right? Like that's yeah. Okay. I have not seen him go in the sixth or seventh round and I am a full supporter of MVS. I think he's going to be, and I've said on numerous different airways, I think he could be a league. I hate that term league winner. I don't like that at all. Um, but I think he could be tremendous value in the eighth or 12th rounds where he was currently being drafted where I've seen. Yeah. That's a lot easier of a sell in in, in that range. And, uh, for a while now he's, he's not to say that he always has, because he still is one of those guys who has a wide range of opinions. Like sometimes there'll be a big Mark Marcus Valdez Scantling fan. Sometimes there won't be one and he falls to the eighth, ninth, and maybe I'll pick him in that case. But uh, when there's a big fan of his in the draft, I haven't really picked him that much because uh, he's not really the kind of player I want to bid for exactly. He's more like the kind of player I want to buy when the price looks favorable to me. Interesting. Okay. And I, I would consider myself a big fan. What I saw last year and his toolsiness, which you talked about, is something that Packers offense has desperately lacked, frankly, since the heydays of Jordy Nelson yeah. when he had the speed and the size to do stuff. And uh, there was multiple times last season where Velda Scantling was targeted either on pass interference calls or just a, f- a f- uh, flat out deep ball thrown his way that there isn't anybody on that receiving core right now that can pull off something like that um, otherwise. So I've I've been a huge supporter of in a second season now with Aaron Rodgers, who I think already had a little bit of trust with with Rodgers, um, in, at least in situational times where he's throwing it up. I like him quite a bit in that eighth to tenth round, but I I just haven't like it's it's even for me being an aggressive supporter of Velda Scantling, I could not take him in round six or seven. Like that's Cooper Cup where he's falling to that territory. And as much as I dislike Cooper Cup, he's got a substantial role in a Rams offense that figures to be like I'm an optimistic Packers fan or I try to be. The Rams offense is going to be better than the Packers this year. I think that's pretty safe to say. Yeah, I think Cooper Cup usually goes at least around, like when I say late sixth or early seventh, that's definitely the upper range range of the possibility for uh, Valdez Scantling, whereas Cup, it's a pretty big surprise at this point if he falls past maybe the mid sixth, something like that, especially now that he's getting good reviews in training camp. But uh, if I remember right, usually you got to make the call on Valdez Scantling uh not not as soon as guys like dd westbrook or curtis samuel but maybe like 
uh, why am I trying? Uh, maybe somebody like Sammy Watkins, Robbie Anderson, mm. kind of that yeah, range. Okay. All right. And I'll take Sammy Watkins the vast majority of the time, but Robbie Anderson, Valdez Scantling is a tougher call for me. Like, I love Robbie Anderson's talent. I just don't trust Adam Gase one bit. And uh, whereas with Valdez Scantling, not as talented as uh, Robbie Anderson, in my opinion, but I'm also not as worried about Aaron Rodgers or uh, Matt LaFleur even being any sort of issue for him. So it's kind of in that range where I might get interested in buying. My favorite thing, or the ideal way to get Valdez Scantling in best ball anyway, I think, is if you can, if you're lucky enough to have him fall to the late eighth round. And I had this happen once actually the past week or so had him at like i don't know maybe like the ninth or eighth or tenth pick in the eighth round and then i was able to get geronimo allison in Mm. the early ninth and in best ball it's it's kind of advantageous sometimes to have stacks like that as long as you get them both at a you know later than adp and in in that case it's because because you don't have to start them you don't have to make the choice of starting them uh rather you just kind of corner that share of the offense and like you just get the benefits of whatever they do right. without any of the headache and in season long redraft that would kind of be annoying because it's probably just going to be whichever one you don't bet on is the one that'll have the good game <laughs> at least probably. my luck yeah that's how it tends to go so i no, i agree with you i agree with you on the comparison between robbie anderson and adam gase who i also grew uh, like i think he's a horrible nfl head coach he might be a good coordinator i think he's a uh, no horrible. he's not you don't <laughs> he's think he's bad at everything all yeah. right that's that's fine i'm, I'm fine going. <laughs> oh yeah i know i know, too. I, know. I, just, I just i do not like him as a head coach around and, here we hate adam gase no we, but we, i feel uh, like the put public down. perception is that people seem to think adam gase is good like oh he's gonna make the jets offense more dynamic and move come on we saw that three years with the dolphins i i honestly haven't seen that but then again i'm definitely more online than i am i won't like, share sport. i won't share some of the experts that I've then seen. Uh, i don't want to name shame anyone i'm more online than i am talk more than i am uh, tuned into talk radio and i bet that's where you find the adam gase fans is on uh the, the guys who call into radio the ones shows. i'm thinking were actually written but oh okay like and that like credible fantasy sources that might be on the well like ship. five years ago i can understand why people thought he might have been good because he had tim tebow right right so well and that, cutler right too he did that uh, kind of. I don't know. I mean, Jay was just whatever. Um, but yeah. In any case, Gase has uh, shown himself to be a complete fraud slash a uh, very strange person who who uh, seems more alienating than anything else. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I I just generally can't imagine him getting along with Robbie Anderson, and even if he did, I can just imagine him just something stupid like disliking robbie anderson because he thinks he looks too skinny and doesn't like blocking enough something <laughs> stupid like that is the kind of thing that adam oh, gase like yellow in his hair we can't have that happen honestly yes i mean adam gase just seems like a kind of weird alienating guy and i i am worried about how he receives robbie anderson but uh, i do like robbie anderson as a player and uh, i certainly don't mean to like argue against anyone oh, taking him there no, I, but I agree with you. Of those three, I would probably go Robbie Anderson first, which was interesting, and then Marquez Veldes-Scantling second. Sammy Watkins is the one I'm, I'm concerned with, but in a draft setting, in a best ball setting, yeah. it's totally fine with me to go that direction. I'm thinking a season-long, I don't want to deal with the headache that Sammy Much Watkins different, might be, yeah. right? So that's that's where our differences lie, but I get the thought process, and all of this is to say I'm still completely in on Marquez Veldes-Scantling as an 8th, ninth, 10th round selection. If he is going as high as 6th and 7th round, even the most Arduin supporters me is, is probably going out on that. I did want to get on the Chiefs' backfield, though, situation, too. I've seen it a lot in, in recent drafts, both Darwin Thompson and uh, I think it's Daryl Williams, right? Not Daryl, yeah. Okay, it's Daryl Williams. Darwin Thompson and Daryl Williams have been getting drafted and, and fairly early for what could amount to be the second, third, or fourth string running backs for the Chiefs, however much you like Carlos Hyde. And both you and I are completely out on Carlos Hyde as an NFL player, I think, or at the very least shouldn't be a contending backup on a team, right? Like, that's fair to say? Yeah, I don't think he's very good. I never really understood the signing. I thought that since they did sign him that they had some kind of use in mind for him, and I kind of deferred to that for a while as kind of like a 12th 13th 14th round pick who was supposed to be the backup to damian williams and damian williams who i think is how should i say this i think that uh the chief's system produces the running backs including kareem hunt i think kareem hunt is totally a product of that system and i know that people fill their diapers when you say it but it's true because spencer ware and damian williams combined to have just a 
what is it? 4.75 was Kareem Hunt's rushing average there. 4.72 is what Ware and Damian Williams combined for there. And I think Kareem Hunt was like 80% catch rate at 8.4 or 5 or something yards per target. Spencer Ware and Damian Williams have uh, caught something like 85% of their targets there at 8.7 or 8 yards per target. So I feel like we're pretty clearly presented with a scenario of like, you can say that one of them is good but if you do you're saying all three are good because otherwise why wouldn't the difference uh, manifest in the production at all and spencer Ware, by the way who carries the sample between him and williams williams obviously only played five or six games or whatever but uh spencer Ware did his damage in just pretty much the alex smith offense he didn't even have a year uh, or 11 games i guess in kareem hunt's case he didn't have that 11 games of the mahomes effect so right. um in any case I thought this was basically one of those deals where like whoever's out there is going to be good. And so even Carlos Hyde, I thought, yeah, I mean, it's the system. It's not really the player that matters. But Hyde looks like he might not make that team. In fact, I don't know why he would at this point because it seems like he's fallen behind uh, Darwin Thompson, certainly. But then even Daryl Williams. And Daryl Williams is a 230-ish pounder. He was kind of considered like a fullback tweener coming out of LSU. So he's considered a big back skill set. And if they consider him the better big back between him and Hyde, and Hyde doesn't play special teams, Daryl Williams does. I just don't know why Hyde would make the team. Right. I get, so I don't. I would not pick Hyde at this point. Uh, Darwin Thompson, though, I don't know what exactly people think is going to happen there because he's interesting. He seems very skilled, at least. He doesn't have much in the way of tools. He ran a four-five-five at the Utah State Pro Day at five-eight one ninety-eight, and. I think that there's all this animosity toward Damian Williams in large part because he was kind of a league winner last year as a fab pickup. And there's all these people who are like, oh, my team's a juggernaut. I got like uh, Christian McCaffrey and Kareem Hunt and whatever else. And then it's like week 14 shows up and the guy who had the highest waiver claim and picks up Damian Williams uh, just just steamrolls everybody. And they go like, oh, this is bull crap. I well, you it's know, funny. Me. Christian McCaffrey was probably a league winner. <laughs> That's what that was the first running back you said, at least in the playoffs. Oh, right. I just I just mean like <laughs> it, it, when people, you know, people don't want to lose to the guy who picked up yes, uh, whatever Jerome Harrison or something like that. Like C.J. Anderson. Yeah, C.J. Anderson. Like they want to lose, or, or Jalen Samuels probably got a little bit of a blowback for it. People want to lose uh, because the other team, you know, had uh, Todd Gurley. Not because they had Damian Williams, right. who everybody thought was just like out of the league two weeks before he showed up and started dominating. So uh, I think there's some kind of psychological uh, explanation for why Damian Williams faces so much skepticism. Because it's like, even if you think he's a product of the system, which I do, the system still has uh, certain traits that it looks for. Certain traits uh, suit the system better than others. And this, basically, in this case, the traits are just, can you catch the ball well? And can you exploit space? Because you don't need to have good vision or good quickness even to tear up a defense when Pat Mahomes is forcing them to play back so far. So Damian Williams is faster than Darwin Thompson, even though he's 20, 25 pounds heavier. And he's a plus pass catcher. Like, there's no doubt about that. Whatever you think about Damian Williams, you cannot dispute that he's one of the most skilled pass catchers in the league. So if he's four four five and Darwin Thompson is four five five at 20 pounds less and it's kind of like a break even as far as their pass catching ability by what means does darwin thompson take a lead there and even if he did he only had uh, i want to say 150 carries in uh, 13 games last year he split carries at utah state why would he be more than a split carry player in the nfl so i can imagine him having a role as small as kind of like shark kendrick west yeah but i think he's a lot better than shark kendrick west so uh, and damian williams can get hurt he's got durability concerns but all these things are why Damian Williams goes in the late second, early third instead of the top 10. It's already baked into his price. Right, exactly. And for the people in the back that are shutting their ears, closing their eyes, and not listening to the situation or seeing what's unfolding in front of you, if Carlos Hyde gets cut, which is a realistic possibility, I would bet on it. You more shouldn't than not. be drafting Carlos Hyde. If Carlos Hyde gets cut, the person that benefits from that. Is Daryl Williams right? Like, uh, no, I mean I think that Darwin Thompson would be the f- the second off the, or the first off the bench, but uh, Daryl Williams, because he's a two hundred and thirty pounder, would probably be the one who, if it's a blowout, I would bet on him getting the carries. Like okay. I think Darwin Thompson, 
will get work, but I can't imagine how he would, I don't know, be within six carries per game of whatever figure that Damian Williams has. And I think that's kind of like the best case scenario for Darwin Thompson. So even if Darwin Thompson gets on the field, I think it's going to be kind of like, a, I don't know, maybe like an Austin Eckler to Melvin Gordon kind of thing. Okay. Not to say that Damian Williams will get that kind of workload because he won't. Uh, the Chiefs offense just doesn't really work that way. Like even when Damian Williams was murdering everybody last year, he was doing kind of like 12 to 16 carries and then he would get six to eight catches. So I think that's the template and I can understand why the Chiefs would want to limit Damian Williams rushing workload because uh, since Oklahoma in 2013, he hasn't taken more than like 55 carries in a year and uh he had a bum shoulder a year ago that required surgery Uh, i don't know if there was anything before that but it's like it's reasonable to not be certain that he can handle a bigger workload uh but he took the workload that he did last year and had no issue with it so unless people want to specifically predict that darwin thompson will average like six yards a carry or uh 10 yards a target i just don't see where they propose he's an improvement over damian williams so if damian williams doesn't get hurt i think he's the lead guy but I can imagine it being like Daryl Williams goes in the game when they have a lead or when it's like they're so just running the out the clock. Own behind Damien Williams is not Daryl Williams; it's Darwin Thompson. Your mind? I think there's a case for both at a certain price. Like if it's the last round of the draft, last couple rounds in NFFC, something like that, where they have big benches. Yep, they're both worth picks. But the reality of it is, Darwin Thompson is going as high as the eighth round now. Exactly, and I don't really want to make that bid if he was. If he was still going in the 11th or 12th, sure. Uh, I think even if Damian Williams stays healthy all year, Darwin Thompson could prove to be a totally good flex kind of play. But in the eighth round, you need Damian Williams to get benched or hurt. You just need that to happen or it's pretty much a wasted pick. Um, so I I am not really bidding there. I'm not going to get more Darwin Thompson shares. I, I just am not willing to pay that much. But it's not because I doubt him as a player. It's, it's just that... I think that the the premises on which people really doubt Damian Williams don't add up at all to me. No, I agree with you, and I've I've agreed with you since the beginning of August, and I feel like those same concerns rear their. It's like cyclical, happening every other every other week around this time. Oh, yep, Damian Williams. I don't know if he's going to be a a guy in the backfield, and I just I disagree with that entirely. I do think Daryl Williams is the handcuffed own out of that backfield if somebody gets hurt. Like I think he'll end up probably splitting time with Darren Thompson. But if you're paying eighth eighth round like eight eight rounds difference between the two why wouldn't you go and get Daryl Williams so the only thing about Daryl Williams is he largely justifies his roster spot by his special teams work and because he can be just like a blitz pickup guy if they're going hurry up but he ran a four seven two or something like that and he's only like three four or five pounds heavier than Damian Williams who's almost three tenths of a second faster in the 40 right so Daryl Williams I think will quite simply see his workload increase as the situations become less competitive if it's a situation where it's like a third and one and the chiefs are up 11 points that's when daryl williams gets a carry i think if it's a third and one and it's like a two-point game or the chiefs are losing it's going to be damian or darwin thompson before it will be daryl williams but again i still think daryl williams is worth a pick in the last round the last couple rounds because if Damian Williams gets hurt, then it'll be, I think, an even split between Daryl mm-hmm. and Darwin Thompson. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds, I, I get what you're saying, and you're attacking this from the perspective that Damian Williams is going to be healthy all year. And I'm trying to at least tell people who are questioning, I've seen Darwin Thompson go like, in our stake league auction, I think he went for five or six dollars. And that's I know, reasonable. Yeah. I know yours is a little bit different than ours. We have a, a lot of guys that are super in on players overall, so the budget gets a little bit different. But we even had a dynasty format auction draft uh, earlier this week where he went in double digits, and I just thought that was ridiculous because you have to just assume that Damian Williams isn't going to be playing for some portion of the season to pay a price tag for a guy like that. That was that was high for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm I don't know, I, I just. I don't know if the people picking him in the eighth have in mind Darwin Thompson emerging as the starter and thus like a 20 carry kind of player. If that is what they have in mind, I think they should let that thought go. But if they have a roster construction where they're like, I'm okay with having Darwin Thompson as a, my flex guy in the eighth round and they think it can work. I guess I can't argue against that because I think Darwin Thompson can be totally decent flex player. But the idea that he's going to displace Damian Williams on merit, if, if that's, part of what's informing the price you're willing to pay for darwin thompson i think that's just bad thinking personally yeah 
Okay. All right. Well, at least we're close to the same page on that one. Before we get to some of the ADP risers that you've noticed, at least over the last week, let's get a word from our sponsor, Sports Predictor. The team of professional professional bettors at sportspredictor.com are an elite group of long-term winners. They're here to help you pick your booking. Here's how they can help you win. The entire team at Sports Predictors have a proven profitable edge, and they're data-driven, using predictive sports models to consistently find value. They're honest and transparent, meaning every pick for every capper every day is published on their on their site, and subscribers are limited, which means every sports predictor package has a subscriber limit, and when that number is hit, it's closed to new members. They also educate bettors with informative articles and the Sports Predictor Podcast to help you learn from professionals. Choose a professional handicap service that operates with integrity and a winning edge. Choose sportspredictor.com. All right, so let's touch on a few of the, the best ball risers, and I, I was Curiously, curious to hear your opinions, at least overall, on Leonard Fournette, who's jumped about five points, which you detail in your, your latest article, or 580p, I should say, not points. This isn't stock. Um, I, I like Fournette, and I think the rise has a little bit to do with his receiving background, or at least the fact that he could be receiver. Is that kind of what you've identified for the rise, or just simply not many running backs around that part that you can have the league-winning upside? Well, it's... Uh... A combination, I think, of pretty good coverage that he's received from media this off this training camp, and also just today. Before I actually saw this, I had already finished and posted the article. But I saw today there was an article that came out. Sorry, I don't remember where, but it was something about how Fournette's. It was like a profile about Fournette and how uh, he's got a better outlook and like different life routine, and like he's in better shape mm. and he's like focused and whatever. And if you know that stuff's interesting if nothing else i don't know if it really should change your your evaluation of players but maybe it's a tiebreaker kind of thing if you were on the fence about something but it does uh it does you know vibe with the the reports out of training camp which are just simply saying fournette looks good he's doing well catching the ball and i think he already showed last year that he's a dangerous pass catching threat he might have kind of made it clear even as a rookie but he's interesting to me because a lot of people are sour on him, understandably. I mean, he was a disaster if you picked him last year, and it cost a lot to pick him last year. But in best ball, at least, I'm, at least as a person who has pretty big volume in best ball, I'm very much into Fournette. Not so much at the new prices. Like, I'm, I still would more or less pay it if, if that's how the draft order was shaking out and I just kind of wanted to take a running back there. But he was falling into the fourth round a lot of the right. offseason. And that's ridiculous, in my opinion, at least in best ball it is, because even if he leaves games early, even if he's going into a game with no practice and he's a game time decision, that's just immaterial in best ball. And if he does stay healthy, he would basically be the player everyone thought they were drafting last, last year, year in the first round. Mm-hmm. So particularly with Nick Chubb moving from the second round to the first, on Johnson moving from the fourth, fifth to the second and Chris Carson moving from the fourth, fifth to kind of like the mid early third, Leonard Fournette is almost necessarily going to get pushed up with them too, because everybody who's raising those other players is looking to Fournette for the same thing, which is workhorse upside, a guy who could get 20 carries and also four or five catches. Derek Henry kind of uh, whatever around later, he can get you the 20 carries, but probably not the three or four catches. So that's why there's a divide there and in best ball where you really need that high scoring upside that is pushing the upside toward the top of the draft, uh, especially in light of the Zeke and Gordon holdouts. So he Fournette is now pretty reliably going in the second round from what I've seen, which is probably where he should have been all along, even with all the risk. And uh, part of the thing is he was falling into the third and the fourth because there was kind of a popular idea out there. And I guess by popular, I shouldn't say I shouldn't say necessarily popular because it, it's not as if it was a majority, but it was enough people that it it impacted his ADP. And that's the idea that, oh, well, Fournette also sucks at football. Like, that's what right. a lot of people believe in. It's like, that's not true. Whatever you think about Leonard Fournette, you need to accept that he's extremely talented. Like, he's a rare talent. And maybe he's a head case. Maybe his ankles are crap. I don't know. But you can't say he's bad at football. And if that is something you believe in that informs your price on him, the price is wrong like it's you just can't have a false premise like that in your reasoning so that seems to be going away as the good training camp coverage comes in and along with all the other things it's pushed him up uh past the 30 uh pick point pretty reliably from what i've seen 
And I, I get that. I 100% do. The one I don't understand rising as significantly high as he has is Chris Carson. I get that he's going to be more of a receiving thrower, at least we're getting reports out of training camp from the, the Seahawks beat writers, that he will be utilized more as a pass catcher than we've seen in past seasons. But you talk about Rashad Penny as someone that you are surprised or at least noticing, noticing his, his fall. That's around, but I also think Chris Carson's injury concerns can't be understated at this point in his career either. Like he's just a very rugged and aggressive runner and it's made him more susceptible susceptible to injuries than we've seen other players the position. Yeah, I mean I think Chris Carson is worth it in the early third, mid third in best ball because the simple reality is after him it basically is like David Montgomery, right. Josh Jacobs and Derrick Henry and I have no interest in David Montgomery or Josh Jacobs because I just don't trust what's going on with them and they they cost a price as if they're going to be as not only as u- utilized as often but as good and effective as these other players nearby and I I just don't believe that at all and uh, then it's like Derrick Henry who again doesn't really catch passes so uh, maybe Devonte Freeman is in that range but there's various reasons to worry about his usage upside and that the offense never really made a big time workhorse out of him when Tevin Coleman was healthy anyway so there's all these things like where basically after Carson you might be surrendering a certain amount of upside at running back like it's just gone you can't get it after him but uh, I am in favor of chasing that upside in best ball at least on some teams because he last year I think would have been on something like a 280 carry pace if he uh, stayed healthy and I, I scale back my best case projection for him this year because I, I don't think he could it just seems like it's asking too much to have him do that and catch more passes so even if he goes to something like 230 carries catches 40 passes that's a pretty big change and it's something that i can't really expect out of the people who are behind him in the draft order like maybe tevin coleman but that's asking a lot out of his durability that he generally hasn't shown in the past and matt Breida is really good so I just don't see where the upside is. Maybe Austin Eckler if Gordon sits out the whole year, but this is this is ah, sorry. This is all to say, it's just it could it kind of puts you in a rough spot if you don't get one of these running backs going into the fourth or fifth round. Like you just might kind of lose if you don't have one of those guys because it, some of them are going to hit, and just because you have a better value at your later pick at running back than the guys who might turn out to be busts in the second, first, third round doesn't mean you're catching anybody you might just finish in middle place or something like that so uh, i can see why it makes sense or i think it makes sense to chase carson's upside a little bit because he has shown a pretty convincing pass catching ability but yeah the details with him that people don't bring up very often is his durability concerns are exactly as bad as fortnette's because his senior year at oklahoma state he was pushed out of the starting lineup by justice hill then a 175 pound true freshman not just on the basis of merit, but he had an ankle issue or something like that that kind of knocked him out, and then he just never gained ground on Justice Hill because Justice Hill was doing well. Uh, His rookie year, he broke his leg after four games, and then last year he had the hip that he played through. This offseason, he had a knee scope, so he's been hurt more often than he hasn't been, as as in three of the past, well, no, like each of the last three years he's been hurt in some way or another, so... He's basically just never had a clean bill of health. And with his running style, like you said, it kind of adds up. He takes a lot of hits. It's just part of his method. He has to break tackles to be productive. And he breaks tackles, so he is effective. But eventually, you just kind of run out of juice. You just kind of break down when you play that way. I don't see any reason to bet on that being this year. But yeah, I, I don't really expect him to play 16 games. It's just not really who he's been. Still, though, if he plays 14 games, he might give you, I don't know, eight top five running back scores and you just can't really say that about the guys after him well that's true i you know it's interesting that you say he can't provide or he will he'll break down at some point i think we've already seen him break down at least these three seasons at at times and with his running style everybody everybody's injury prone right every every single player in the nfl it's possible they could have a season injury that play so i I, the it's understating or i'm sorry it's overstating a little bit saying oh yeah this guy you can get hurt yada 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 but when your running style, running style like Chris Carson's is directly related to that, where he has to be aggressive to break tackles, he's not a Tariq Cohen and juking around or maybe taking less hits when he's doing so, that's where my concern lies. And investing a third-round pick in him is difficult. It's a best-ball-specific thing, to be clear, because he is a guy, it's easy to imagine him like leaving 
after five carries and he's in your lineup for one point and there's nothing you can do about it but in best ball those games just don't count right so that's the very in redraft season long i guess i'm probably not paying i'm more likely to go zero running back if there's no good running backs that i feel comfortable with come the third round but in best ball i am less likely to go zero running back generally speaking we only have a little bit more time but i did want to touch on josh jacobs for a second i didn't realize that you were not in on him as a third or fourth round talent and maybe it's just because you've watched more collegiate film than i am but I like his situation with the Raiders. I don't really think besides Richard that there's somebody that's going to be noticeably taking away carries from him. Whereas um, like in the case of Chris Carson, we're, we have a guy like Rashad Penny who is as talented, if not better or more talented, that's there to potentially soak up some of the carries. So why are you concerned about Josh Jacobs or at least not acquiring him over like guy Chris Carson? Well, I guess things changed a little bit recently with Doug Martin getting cut. Uh, so maybe I should adjust my expectations a little bit but i was just low on jacobs as a prospect to me he was more of a third fourth round kind of talent and they took him in the first round i can kind of understand the allure of a player like him like he looks good on tape he looks like he's good at running back stuff but uh, the numbers didn't really convince me of that and the thing is he had terrible workout metrics for a projected first round pick like he ran in the four six range even at a pro day setting he might have ran a four six five if he had run healthy at the combine and maybe he'll improve his athleticism he's still unusually young for a prospect but if the uh if the selling point if the, if, if the thing that's supposed to make me overlook the concerning production and workout metrics is the idea that he'll be better eventually then i'm saying he's not good enough now like i i don't want the thing that that's supposed to sell me being like we'll just wait and see like i'll wait and see if he's a sixth or seventh rounder but i don't really want to take him in the third he was a backup in college he's never started and i don't know why it would be easy for him at an age disadvantage to change that upon reaching the NFL. Like they could force him in the lineup and without Martin, maybe they'll have to do exactly that. But I'm worried about him just holding up. I'm worried about him being good in the first place. And as much as he was a convincing pass catcher in college in terms of the, you know, the production peripherals, Jalen Richard is not, uh, is not, uh, matched by a whole lot of running backs league wide as a pass catcher so i don't expect jacobs to be one of those players who who can match him it's like there might just be alvin kamara uh i don't know duke johnson ahead of jalen richard he might be the third best pass catcher as not the best running back generally like he's he's got a pretty limited skill set probably like he's more of a pass catching specialist but in that one capacity i don't know why a rookie uh who never started in college and is younger than his competition would match him there. So if Jacobs is just a guy who gets 220, 240 carries and he's doing four yards a carry, that's more of a guy that I would think about in the fifth or sixth. Like, I, I don't know if I can convince myself to put Jacobs ahead of David Montgomery. And I, I am oh, a lot lower on David Montgomery than most people. Oh, that, that's, that's interesting. I, I like, I, I'm not convinced on Josh Jacobs talent either. Make no mistake. I, I agree with you. And I, I've read a lot of your guys' articles and, and coverage on Josh Jacobs, but the situation alone makes me way more comfortable than Chris Carson or David Montgomery, where there's very clear backfield competition. The Raiders' backfield doesn't have that as as great as Richard is as a receiving back, and I think maybe not third, but Christian McCaffrey would be included in that conversation. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, so definitely. fourth or fifth, great, but that doesn't mean he's going to be running the ball, and for whatever the reason, how archaic it might be, it seems like John Gruden wants to have a ground-based offense attack that he can then do the passing around, right? And if that's the case, then Josh Jacobs is going to get 240, 250 carries as a four-yard guy. Just because he's not getting 40 or 50 receptions doesn't mean that I, I wouldn't take him situationally over a guy like Chris Carson, who is going to miss time. We think he's going to miss time well, and the, has more talent behind him. For me, Chris Carson has proven his skill, and I don't have any doubts about his skill whatsoever. And I don't have any doubt about his situation playing time or supporting cast wise because Russell Wilson will score touchdowns. It's just automatic. And the run blocking was really good last year for Seattle. Like their offensive line was crap for a long time, but at least in run blocking, they were really good last year. So I'm sold on Carson's skill set and more or less his talent. Whereas with Jacobs, it's a question mark to me. So I can, I can see the argument for it. And certainly as far as the third, fourth round after Carson goes, he projects for probably the safest uh carry share yeah for a, a derrick henry aside i guess 
uh, and Devonte Freeman, Tevin Coleman aside, maybe. But yeah, I just I I think that part of the best case scenario that people are banking on with Jacobs entails catching like fifty passes, and I just don't hmm. think he will. No, I, well, I don't think that either. When I'm drafting him in the third round, I'm assuming he's going to be more. He's going to be a better version of our Derrick Henry is for the Titans' offense, which relies solely on Derrick Henry to do things. But as a runner, I think Josh Jacobs will be, be that as a runner, but also maybe get mixed in as a passer. I'd much rather have Henry because I I at least feel certain that he'll get the carries, and yeah. I think he's more talented than Josh Jacobs. But who's getting the carries though, other than Josh Jacobs? I mean, DeAndre Washington's had a pretty big preseason, and it's not that I'm so much saying that I worry about Jacobs not getting the carries. I more so just worry that he won't do well with them. Like, I can imagine Jacobs finishing this year with 3.3 yards a carry or something like that. I can imagine him getting hurt because he's never carried a workload in college. It's like people, not to say that the people who doubt Damian Williams necessarily like Josh Jacobs, but it's like, if you're afraid of Damian Williams because he hasn't had a a big workload in the NFL... You should really be afraid of Josh Jacobs because he didn't even have a big workload in college. And Damian Williams at least started two years at Oklahoma. So I just think that, I don't know, the the Raiders have every incentive to justify Josh Jacobs by getting him the ball as much as possible. And it's within Gruden's nature to run the ball, like you said. But I'm taking Devontae Freeman for sure. I'm probably taking Derrick Henry, especially in standard scoring I am. Uh, maybe it's different in PPR. I'd, I've, I'd have to like rerun my projections, I guess. But I think I would lean toward David Montgomery between the two, which is to say they're both like fifth round values to me as opposed to their third, fourth round price tag. Maybe it's just because I'm I'm attracted to the thing I haven't seen on an NFL level. We've seen Josh Jacobs in college and he's a backup. I get that. But we haven't seen him on an NFL level where he is the guy. And I, I just don't there isn't anybody else that I'm concerned with the Raiders backfield that makes me think otherwise. So I've yeah, seen Devonta Freeman, I've seen Chris Carson and I know what comes with them. I don't know what comes with Josh Jacobs. If it ends up being bad, well, the shame on me. And that's, I think that's where our difference is applying with this. Yeah. But again, I, th- I feel like Carson has proven himself, whereas like Jacobs could prove himself, but he hasn't. So that's like the basis that I, why did the them. Seahawks take Penny in the first round then? Uh, they probably didn't think Carson would do as well as he did last year. Uh, he was a seventh. He was one of the last picks in the seventh round of his draft the year before, and he was coming off of a broken leg that was pretty nasty. So, and uh, the Seahawks are stupid. Like they, <laughs> I was the I was a bigger Penny fan than pretty much anybody. Yeah, but yeah. the thing is, before the Seahawks took him in the first, it was more so trendy to project Penny as a fifth round pick. And I was considered like one of the more irrational advocates by saying, no, he's a good late second or early third, third, third round pick. Yeah, yeah. Even I was like, well, why would you take him in the first? <laughs> I, I mean, I was, I was happy for Penny. I was right. like, oh, wow. I, I you know, thought I was kind of going crazy with everybody telling me that he sucks. He's a fifth rounder because Donnell Pumphrey had big numbers right. at San Diego State. Right. And I was like, well, that's, he weighed 170 pounds or whatever. Penny's 225 and runs a 446. It's a little different. And he was better than Pumphrey. But anyway... I still think Penny is talented, and I still think that, and like I say in the article, Carson's ascent is not necessarily at Penny's expense. I think Carson's yeah. ascent is at the expense of the receivers and tight ends in that offense. Penny still is the top guy, I think, pretty clearly, and I think he's the kind of guy who, if he got opportunity, he would kind of pick up steam with more work. Like I think he's a rhythm runner. It doesn't really suit Penny to come off the bench and play one series at a time, but if you let him see the field a long time and watch the defense over the course of a game – He'll eventually figure out the safeties and split them if he gets the running room. Whereas uh, Carson, to be fair, is is like a lower standard deviation runner. Like he won't get one or two or zero yards as often as Penny. But Penny's the guy who can just break the defense's back with a big play. And Carson still is a major durability worry. So just because I'm just because I'm on board with Carson in the early mid third isn't to say that I'm knocking Penny. Uh, his 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 price has fallen anyway though you can get him in the eighth ninth round and i'm definitely buying there i think i can very clearly tell where where my mistakes are gonna be made this season when it comes to these players right that i'm, I'm putting probably too much faith and certainly in the case of the raiders who have just bumbled it feels like the entire offseason both you and john have expressed that in, in previous podcasts putting too much faith in the front office that they have made the correct decision both in penny's case as a first round selection and in josh jacobs as a first round selection to me the draft pedigree means something, and that's why I'm I'm more concerned that the Seahawks don't value Chris Carson the way that maybe you do, and that's that's where our, our differences lie in that. But uh, I think they wouldn't have made him the starter if that were the case, and like he's clearly starting over Penny. Yeah, but yeah. again, I say that without knocking Penny. I think 
Penny's price already accounted for his diminished workload and general risk because he was going in the sixth, seventh round all this time. Him going in the eighth and ninth, probably later than Darwin Thompson all the time. That I don't understand. No, I, I mean I, I get you there, and I've had I, I acquired Rashad Penny in the stake league as my uh, really it's going to be end up being a running back two hopefully. So maybe he finds some more time on the field sooner than I think he'll be a decent XYZ. running back two in fourteen team leagues if you have yeah. good receivers. Yeah, so. uh, unfortunately I don't do that either. So oh, well, okay. uh, <laughs> you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that does it for us on the Thursday NFL podcast. Stay tuned next week for John and Mario breaking down the week one uh, slate to be and players to target. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.